morning, Matt is going to be continuing his series on Revelation. I will be reading from Revelation chapter 3, 14 to 22, and then Revelation chapter 20. So, Revelation 3, 14 to 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and the salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the words of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years had ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years is ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. 
death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death and the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Is it mean that I make other people read texts like that? <laughs> I'm the one who's the lead pastor. If we're going to interact with those texts in the scriptures, maybe I should read them. I appreciate it, though, Joseph. And I think the service flows better. It's not all me. How many of you like Christmas music? It's okay. Safe place to like it or dislike it. Fans? Like, you can go low or big. Okay. Not fans. Like when you first hear, you're the ones that post on social media, when you first hear that song in Stop and Shop and you're like, it's October. What's happening? <laughs> not fans. Okay, just curious. A lot of you were not honest with me about that moment. That's okay. That's all right. God knows. <laughs> the reason I'm asking is we sing about the gospel in very profound ways around Christmas. And most of the hymns have as much to do with the second advent as they do the first. Because if, G, if, if everything that Jesus did is all he's going to do, that would be good news. But if we know that he is going to return and actually untangle all of evil, extricate evil from people, from governmental systems, from the actual earth, then how much more profound is that joy to the world? And how much more profound is it when we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel? We return to the um, beginning of the book of Revelation, which is the letter to the churches, the words of Jesus to the churches, and this is the last one. And some of you are pretty familiar with this text. And you know that the Laodicean church is the only church that nothing kind is said to them. And I think we get this philosophically, but sometimes we struggle with it, especially when the language is aggressive. Um, but if you have what you need, if you know where you're going to get your next meal, if you know that you're going to have a roof over your head and heating oil, see, I'm learning, New England, heating oil, not natural gas. You have heating oil in your home tonight, and you even have some sense of security for the future, it is harder to know that you have a deeper need when your needs are met, right? We get that humanly. So the scripture says that we need Christ's work to reconcile us to God. If we have everything we need materially in the world, it is harder to get that. Although at the same time, if we're very, very, very poor, the challenge is more like resentment rather than a sense of need. Well, the Laodicean church and the, Laod the city of Laodicea is very, very wealthy. In 60 AD, it was destroyed by an earthquake. Rome said, let us help, and they said, no, we got it, we're good, because they were such a wealthy city. And that, that temperament, in addition to the fact that their worship in Jesus' mind was tepid, and there is no such thing in the Revelation as tepid worship, there's either worship of the Lamb or not, but their, their worship was so tepid that Jesus speaks to them very strongly. And this is so biblical. I mean, have you read the book of James? James says that those of us that are blessed with material wealth, I shouldn't have used the word blessed. That's totally going to mess up one of my points in just a second. Shoot. Those of us that have all that we need provisionally and materially should actually weep 
and howl. That's James's words. If you've read the book of Luke, you see Jesus over and over and over again cautioning people that if they have everything they need, it will be even more challenging for them to remember their great need in terms of salvation. Now I come to the point that I almost just messed up a second ago. I was talking with a friend a couple of uh, months ago who has suffered quite a bit, and he said, is it interesting to you that we define the word blessed how we want instead of how Jesus defined it, and it clicked for me. You know, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus defines blessed in a number of ways called the beautiful attitudes, and yet we define it oftentimes as having everything that we need. I've told this story before, but for a different reason, so I'm going to tell it again because I only have a certain number of stories. When I was getting ordained, which is true, when I was getting ordained, um, one of the processes takes a long time. The Presbyterian Church, they really want to know that I'm at least pretty good at this before they'll let me pastor a church. I hope that encourages you. And uh, I was standing in front of a hundred pastors being quizzed on five categories. And in one of them, some parts of my story ended up coming up. And I don't know if you know, you know, my family uh, struggled mightily with divorce and, and various kinds of dysfunction. Some of you can relate, others not. And I said one of the ways that I was very lucky, not a word you're supposed to use in an ordination exam, <laughs> I said, one of the ways I was very lucky is there were almost always good folks in my life, good men, especially mentoring me. And the guy who was doing the exam looked at me and he had a glimmer in his eye and he said, use the word luck, Matt. Do you believe in luck? <laughs> and I changed the word to blessed and I think that word was just as wrong. Except that through the, the story of, of growing up, I did learn perhaps or was uh, given by the Holy Spirit a sense of my spiritual poverty, and then there's Christ. That's meekness, as Jesus actually defines this. I'm not positive we should use the word blessed nearly as often as we do. I'm even more sure that we ought to define it the way that Jesus does, which is as knowing our need and living as a needy person who has been found and freed and forgiven and given peace from the Holy Spirit. And I, as I've been preaching on Revelation, and we're almost done, and by the way, the last two chapters are really positive. So if you're sick of hellfire and everything else, well, Jesus was too, and he gave us Revelation 21 and 22, so you should come back next week. But it has seemed to me that it's not been a crowd pleaser. It has seemed like it's heavy because the text is very challenging. And yet, Revelation encourages our hearts because it is unflinching about our need for the gospel, about the fact that humans worship, and there's, there, it's binary. It's either worship of the lamb or worship of the beast. And it is unflinching about evil from your own story or from watching the news or perhaps from a knowledge of history. Have you ever been just struck? Is it that bad? And the vision that Jesus gave to John would say, says, yes. And far more of that bad is supernatural than perhaps you realize. So the revelation doesn't immediately encourage us, and yet I think it does in one sense. Because we're on, a, back to the Laodicean church, we're on a little bit of a hamster wheel here in Connecticut. I've lived in Oklahoma and Missouri, and I'm very convinced that it is expensive to live here. <laughs> and yet, we're making it happen but that doesn't speak peace to our hearts, right? 
Those of you that are able to make it happen, those of you able to, to, to save and to pay your bills and you know that you're going to have heat and food tonight, are your hearts at rest over that? I imagine not, which is part of the reason that you're in church. And that's the way that even these strong words to the Laodiceans in hopes that they will repent can encourage you. The Bible, and especially Jesus, uh, utilized the strongest language for those that believe they can save themselves, either through religious practices that they're willing to do or through their own material and provisional uh, and provision things that they have gained or earned, depending on how you, you view that. Ju- uh, James uses strong language. Jesus uses strong language, especially to some Pharisees, though not all. And here Jesus again to the Laodicean church is saying, your hope is not in what you have amassed and what you're able to do economically. Your hope is learning to repent and believe. Remember expectorating from Beauty and the Beast? I feel like in the midst of Revelation, we even need more senses to laugh. Remember the song? I'm especially good at expectorating. Yes, those with daughters. Is it just me? Gaston in Beauty and the Beast says that he's especially good at expectorating, which is spitting for those of you that did not have to watch that movie as much as I did. When Jesus says, I will spit you out of my mouth, we pay close attention. And it doesn't mean that wealth is evil, but it means that worshiping it is very destructive and leads us away from worshiping the Lamb. And so now we come to chapter 20, where the martyrs are are promoted. And I say that because, as I've said uh, a number of times in this series, the book uninvites us from from understanding the sequence of it as a chronological sequence. Now, some would disagree with me on that, and that's fine, they're wrong, but it's fine. And I'm just kidding. You guys know I'm kidding, right? Ultimately, our answers are actually going to be very, very similar. Those that would say it is more chronological sequence than I would, our picture of the beginning, middle, and end is still very, very, very similar. But the martyrs are given a first resurrection. And yet in chapter 6, verse 11, they're given robes. And this isn't like checking into a hotel. This is well done, good and faithful servant. You followed the lamb wherever he went, including unto death. In chapter 11, the church, which is described in chapter 11 as two witnesses, are taken up into heaven in verses 11 and 12 of that. This chapter is as much about the commissioning of the role of the martyrs during the thousand-year period. They're being commissioned as agents. Do you see them described as um, uh, priests in verse 6? And for the first century Christians, they're asking a question that we looked at last week because chapter 19 dealt with it a a little more directly in the sense that it was asking that question and not talking about some of the things chapter 20 is. First century Christians in Laodicea are listening to this and they're wondering, is it worth it to follow the Lamb wherever He goes, even unto death? Is it worth it to follow Him away from wealth? Not meaning give it all away, but stop worshiping it as the culture would encourage us to do. Is it worth it to follow him, possibly even unto death? And the answer of verse chapter 19 and chapter 20 is not only yes, but the alternative is to follow the beast. But the martyrs are drawn into in the language that describes their first resurrection is the language that the rest of the book describes as the work of Christ in between 
his ascension into heaven from his earthly ministry and the time that he returns, which is happening in chapter 20, the language for the martyrs is similar. They have some kind of a role moving across the world and participating in a supernatural way in drawing people to faith. Jesus spoke, and at times it felt, uh, I, it, it, when I read the gospel and I, and I hear him talk about binding a strong man, now I'm, gonna, I'm just going to bounce around the Bible a little bit. If you want to write it down, you can. If you know the Bible well, you'll know some of what I'm talking about. I don't like referencing other scriptures, except that with the revelation, when we reference other scriptures, we understand it far better. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus describes the importance of binding the strong man. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 72. There's 72 followers, and he sends them out into villages, and you think this is a tangent, and it kind of is, but it's going to come back around to Revelation 20 really beautifully. He sends out the 72, and they come back, and do you remember what they say? Jesus, even the spirits were subject to you. Subject to us because of you. And what does Jesus say? I saw Satan fall like lightning. You're like, what does that have to do with anything? And then Jesus says, Rejoice not that the spirits were subject to me, to you in my name, but that your names are written in the book of life. The book referenced in Revelation chapter 20. So perhaps the thousand year period is the period after Jesus' incarnation and Satan is actually bound from blocking the gospel to go around the world and save people through knowledge of his work. In 95 AD, you would be executed in some parts of the Roman Empire for saying, Jesus is Lord. And by 330, it was the national religion. And by a little later, I don't remember the exact date, sorry, historian, it was illegal to not say he was Lord, which is probably a really bad idea. But do you see the unshackling of, or the shackling of Satan and the unshackling of the gospel in the first couple of centuries after Jesus' work? Perhaps the thousand years are a description of the gospel going over the course of the earth through the work of the martyrs who are the church, viewed as witnesses in chapter 11, described as a woman in chapter 12. priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him throughout the earth, not reigning the way we would like, removing all of sin and death, though that will happen. But now, there were perhaps a few thousand Christians when this was written. And today, there are three billion people that say Jesus is Lord. Perhaps this text is about what happened after people began dying for their faith and the faith began spreading all over the world. But we do have this interesting text that is so specific, and in my opinion, I'm increasingly of the opinion that when something is super specific in Revelation, we feel like we can just grab onto it. It's actually the opposite. We're supposed to hold super specific descriptions really loosely in the same way that when we have a description of a city and we have four cities... We learn that the city is representational of something. The fact that we have this thousand years throws everybody off. You know, there are four major theories just about these six verses. 
And those four major theories are within kind of an orthodox Christianity that believes the Bible's true. Not even theories about, you know, people that aren't positive Jesus rose from the dead but still think the Bible's a big deal. Yeah, there are those people too. A lot of Bible scholars out there. And what I want to say to us, to encourage us, is most of the time when we get over-worried about when and how, we are missing the point of the Scriptures. It doesn't mean that when and how don't matter, but they're not our first questions. This is true in Genesis, and it's especially true when we're talking about Jesus' return. All those questions are worthwhile, but they shouldn't be our first questions. Our first questions are, what is this vision teaching us? Well, this is a transcendent, large-scale resurrection. At the time, most people believed if you died at sea, you were like worse off than someone that died in battle or of natural causes because you couldn't be buried. And yet in John's vision, the sea gives up its dead because God is entirely sovereign and entirely powerful. And it's kind of a doubly powerful image in the Revelation because in John's cosmology, if you will, the sea is the chaotic alternative to God's good rule. And yet, it is still fully under his sway. If this is new, it still shows the who and the why even more clear. Meaning, if the thousand years is something that is, is happening in our future and not happening right now, it's still showing the why and the how much more clearly. I think that chapter 20 is another vantage point of chapter 16 and 17. I think this is another angle on Armageddon and what happens. An army comes forward. They come to the city of God, which we're like, where's the city? The city's actually going to come next chapter. So again, we're uninvited from, I think, sequencing the book. And yet what happens? This time there isn't a rider on a white horse. There's no sword coming out of his mouth. There's no king of kings and lord of lords on his leg. They're simply burned up with fire because at the end of the day, regardless of when the millennium happens, Jesus rescues his people from evil and death in a final and victorious way. And so when we sing King of Kings and Lord of Lords and we know something about the vision that Jesus gave to John, we are that much more encouraged, strengthened, and hopeful about our faith. I found, just before I started uh, teaching this series, I found a lovely, lovely, lovely commentary. I don't have any commentaries you've ever read or owned, perhaps zero. Commentaries are not known for their wordsmithing. They're not known for their enjoyable, for, at least for me. I mean, maybe I haven't read enough, probably 60. Um, I just have never enjoyed reading one until now. There is a writer on the Revelation named G.B. Carrot, and he says this about chapter 20. We come now to a passage which, more than any other in the book, has been the paradise of cranks and fanatics on the one hand and literalists on the other. And I love that because when we have an image that we think we can imagine, we grab onto it and try and take it out of the context of the rest of the book. And the problem with that is not only that we're misunderstanding the point of those verses— we don't then receive the encouragement of them. And we miss that this is the defeat of death. I wrote final defeat of death because this is the last time if we're reading or listening to the book sequentially that death will die, but I believe it's actually something that happened at the same time as chapter 16 and 17. 
in the same way that the 3.5 years that the, pro- the witnesses prophesied, the witnesses are, are the church, they're called lampstands, in the same way that the 42 months of the church described in chapter 12, here is the thousand-year description of the gospel of Jesus going around the world because Satan is no longer able to influence the nation and thereby keep the good news centered in such a tiny, tiny area of the world. And, and how did you react when you heard about the books? You know, the book of life and the other books. For me, I struggle with that image because one of the questions that I've heard, I just heard it again this week and I've been hearing it for about, I don't know, 30 years since I've been paying attention, I suppose, which is what happens to those who don't hear the gospel? And what fascinates me about that question is it's a good question. But what doubly fascinates me about it is it's not a very biblical question. From beginning to end, the scriptures tell us things about God and tell us things about ourselves. Tells us things about God's pursuit of us. Tells us things about evil that we don't love listening to, but we suspect we believe to be true. I think a more biblical question about whose names are in this book and whose names are in this book is this. Do you trust him? Do you trust him to judge? Do you trust his judgment? Do you trust that he isn't biased like we are? He's not affected by the stories that we come out of or the news the way that we are. And I'm saying it's a good question, but I'm saying a better question, a more biblical question, a question that I believe Revelation 20 invites us to ask as we picture the books being opened. The book of, the, of life and the books of those listed according to their work is do we trust him? We understand the vision. This vision we get. Of all the visions in Revelation, we kind of get this one. And it troubles us and leads us to that question, I believe. And yet, sometimes in asking that question, we can miss the beauty of what's happening here. It doesn't seem beautiful. It involves involves fire and sulfur. And yet, I'm going to borrow from an author that I like very much named John Eldridge. I read this years ago, and then I saw it again uh, in October, and I've been saving it for this Sunday because I believe this is a description of what it will be like to watch this happen in the spiritual realm. I believe this is why we're actually supposed to leave hearing and reading verse 20, or chapter 20, encouraged. Perhaps even invite you to close your eyes. I know you're a New Englander. You don't want to hear me tell you to do something. Please feel free to not close your eyes. Though for me, it helps me to imagine this. This is from a book called All Things New. Pause and let this be true. Evil is judged and utterly destroyed forever and ever. Not just in the fairy tale, but here in reality, in our story. Satan His armies and every form of evil are destroyed with a punishment that never ends under justice unrelenting. It feels like a 10-ton weight being lifted off my being. What will it be like to no longer be assaulted? To be utterly free from accusation. To look in the mirror and hear no accusing thoughts or voices to be completely free of all temptation and the sabotage of your character, not because you are successfully resisting it in a moment of great resolve, but because it is no longer in existence anywhere in the world. 
What will it be like to have the dark clouds lifted between us and our beloved Jesus? That veil that so often clouds our relationship with him. Imagine when all the physical affliction, emotional torment, abuse, all the evil in this world has vanished. Think of it. What evils will you no longer have to live with personally? Oh, the joy we will experience when we get to watch with our own eyes the enemy brought down for good, cast into his eternal torment. Oh, the hope that begins to rise at the thought of a world where the enemy no longer gets to do what he does. To see our loved ones released from their lifelong battles. To be released from our own lifelong battles, knowing with utter surety that the kingdom of death and darkness is forever destroyed. Hard for us to imagine. You can open your eyes if you were closing them. Hard for us to imagine because we could not judge that purely, but also because we cannot see the way that the evil one and his minions have inflected, infected so much of the world. And yet it is in a gracious way that it is destroyed, not through our work, not through anything we are to do. In the same way that we are saved because of Christ's work, he judges on his, he does it, not us. And that is supposed to encourage us and give us hope and help us to even endure today as we wonder, is it indeed worth it to follow the Lamb wherever he goes? Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we long to sense your comfort as evil is still infecting this world. Jesus, we long for a picture of you that is clear and as pure as we are able to imagine, that we might then imagine you as a good and just judge of all things. Holy Spirit, would you add that to our understanding of you that our faith might be whole and complete and therefore encourage and motivate and inspire us to worship you and to love neighbor amen